coffee. What is it about coffee that makes it so damn good? Maybe it's the smell of coffee brewing that brings back that new to recovery feeling that we got when we first stepped into a meeting. Maybe it's the idea of holding on to one of the only things that still works for kickstarting our day. Maybe it's the way it brings us together, another one of the many things we have in common. Whatever it is, we in the recovery community love our coffee. And why not? Coffee is fuel. Coffee is love. Coffee is life. That's what makes Brainwash Coffee the perfect partner for us here at the Other Side of Hell podcast. Not only is every flavor of Brainwash Coffee mastered and handcrafted by obsessive minds who won't stop until they've gotten it just right, but 50% of all coffee proceeds go back into the recovery community to help those who may still be suffering, which makes Brainwash Coffee a no-brainer. My personal favorite is the higher powder. It's dark, smoky, and rich, and gives me just enough kick to really get into my day. Right now, you can go to brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code OTHERSIDE for 20% off your coffee purchase. Clean your bean with Brainwash. We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who've been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. What's up, world? I'm Willie. And I'm Cameron. And I'm a mess right now, to be honest. <laughs> I like right, right off the bat, you're just like, I'm fucked up, you guys. It's good, though, right? Like, I'm human. Yeah, no, I actually love it. Uh, I feel like a lot of the reason why people like this show is because we're keeping it real. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely still an alcoholic. I'm definitely still an alcoholic in recovery. And, and I'll just share real quick. You know, we're shooting this podcast uh, one day after my 10-year anniversary of the last time I got arrested. So, Oh, that's right. It kind of set the wheels in motion for, you know, for the, for the listeners that have followed us for a long time, you know, the day that I had gotten woken up with a gun in my face was 10 years ago yesterday. That's so, crazy. So I don't know, like these, these milestones and stuff like that. Avery, my, my beautiful, wonderful wife, as 10 years sober as of yesterday and we sort of celebrated that isn't it kind of nice though to at least be able to to because you you start off by saying i'm a mess (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but then but then you get to look at that and and say you know yesterday 10 years ago where were you uh, like even bigger mess exactly like where i mean in retrospect when you compare the two things and and, I, and not to dismiss the, the the things that we go through in in recovery, but in retrospect, it's another one of those moments where it's yeah. like you know things are probably not as bad as as yeah they they never could are be. they just yeah. they just feel like that you know and and to be honest you know like thankfully I did get woke up with a gun in my face because it was a huge game changer for me yeah <laughs> yeah you think <laughs> yeah and so yeah that's what. Surprisingly enough, that's what our topic is today is we're going to talk about game changers in sobriety, in recovery, game changers in recovery. And we got it from our war story, Melissa, who uh, shares a, a crazy journey of discovery. She's got 23 years of sobriety and she had a few cha- game changers in her life. So it seemed like, yeah, she kind of rattled off quite a few. Um, yeah. And 
I, you know, it, it's inspiring because I, it, what it means is that as long as I remain open and willing, mm-hmm. you know, she had 23 years of recovery. So she, she, she got sober when she was 21 and everybody, you'll, you'll hear her story. Um, but she's got more sober time than she did, you know, uh-huh. years on the earth. Um, and, and, uh, it's, it's encouraging to know that we never stop learning, right? Like right. she, she keeps having these game changers. She keeps having these moments where it's just like, boom, like 360 degrees, just sort of turn your world around and, and, uh, and, and be able to discover new things about herself, you know? And uh-huh. I, and I, and I like that. It's encouraging, yeah. like, cool. That means I'm going to, I'm going to continue to learn. And like, even with what you're, you're dealing with, right? Like you, you've learned something new, right? You figured out that there's still work to do, still work to do. And, and that's yeah. all right. Dude. Yeah. Like I have these reminders, these subtle reminders, little nudge from God all the time. Right. Like, Hey man, like turns out there's still, there's still work to do. Yeah, totally. You so, know, a lot going on. So got to be ready to do the work. That's, that's what we do here. Mm-hmm. We work on ourselves, you know, and for some reason I'm reminded of, of that, uh, crab that sheds its shell, right? Like here, here I am, I go through my sobriety, um, hardening myself to the disease of addiction. Right. And, and that's kind of what it feels like to me is like, I grow this hard exterior to protect myself as best I can from the disease that I know I have. Right. Cause I know that I have the disease of alcoholism. And I say that because when I use any substance, it manifests itself inside of me in the obsession to continue to use more regardless of, the, of whatever the, um, the consequences of that is. And so I pick up these different tools on, on different levels of, you know, wherever I'm at spiritually, I pick these tools up and I do the work in that area and it kind of creates this hard exterior. Well, eventually that hard exterior gets too heavy for me to carry. And, um, I grow spiritually and it's time to shed that shell again. Mm. And it leaves me completely exposed. And so I have to walk the world a little bit exposed for a little while, you know, and it's, it's kind of scary because now I'm soft I don't have that shell on me. And, and it, I, as, as I continue to do work, I get to continue to, to build a new shell. Right. You know, that's a little more comfortable for a while. So that's a beautiful way to put that. <laughs> I mean, honestly, and, and, and again, like encouraging, right? Like, Hey man, like I know. And, and, and that's one of maybe the biggest things that I had to learn in recovery is before like in, in active addiction or even just with the, my, my way of thinking before, you know, like every time that things got bad, I felt like they were just going to stay that way. Yeah. Right. Like now I'm at least in a place where I can say, you know what, like, yeah, I'm struggling a little bit right now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's going to stay this way. It just happens to be, you know, my present circumstances and I will come out of this stronger, better and more able to handle these situations in the future. Right. And, and that's okay. And it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think that, um, you know, it took a lot for me to accept that and to get that and to understand that, you know, like shit's not going to stay bad forever. This too shall pass. Mm -hmm. And And, so, and if we, if we compare it, you know, like, fuck it, it ain't that bad. Right. (laughs) It just feels crazy. You know, we, we have this, 
we have this internal uh, desire for destruction of ourselves. And I don't, I don't always have to, you know, I'm a why guy, but I don't always have to know the answer, right? Mm-hmm. I'm an alcoholic. Like, fuck, sometimes I just have to go, uh, I'm an alcoholic. That's what my problem is. Because, you know, right. I shared on the last episode that, you know, my mom had been injured. She's in the hospital. And that's that's new for my family. We haven't been through a whole lot of close calls like that through my life where the family had to come together and like really pitch in and have have conversations about uh, responsibilities and shit. And, and, you know, now that I'm sober and my my entire family is fairly well, you know, we, we struggle with food, but nobody's drunk at the family reunion anymore, at least with my siblings and stuff. And so, you know, but it's still new territory for all of us needing to do this stuff. And as an alcoholic, we all know that doing uncomfortable shit just spins us into a fucking tailspin regardless of where you know i've seen i've seen people that have substantial amounts of sobriety like fall over this kind of stuff and so having a support group and and doing the work on a consistent basis kind of is the game changer for me like it like like one thing worked and i held on to that you know one of one of the things that was a huge game changer for me was was having my dysfunctions uh, shared, sharing my dysfunctions and then having them well received by another right. human being. Mm-hmm. Like knowing that I could trust another person to share that, Hey, I'm a fucking mess right now. You know, like mm-hmm. that, that's a big deal. Yeah. To be open and vulnerable and, and to have people not reject you because that's what the fear is, right? Like we're, we're always just so we're afraid to show, I, I mean, I'm always afraid to show the kinks in my armor, right? Like I'm afraid to be vulnerable with people I don't know. Like, I don't want them to see how, how fucked up I am ultimately. Like, because if you know how fucked up I am, then you're sure to reject me. There's always that fear of rejection. Um, even if, you know, like I come off as the highest version of myself, there's this fear that you'll reject me, but Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you will absolutely reject me. You have to, if you have to reject me, if I show you, just how imperfect I am. Right. Like you're, right. you're sure to. Right. But, and, and again, like these are, these are the things that we might tell ourselves, but these are the things that we, we get to stop and ask ourselves, is that even true? <laughs> yeah. Is that true? Because that's not the case as you've seen, like when we're vulnerable, it actually, in my experience, like we establish more of a connection with those individuals Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, like we're on a new wavelength with those people and our relationships have just grown and fostered, you know, more love and, and, and we're able to connect on a higher level. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard place to get to sometimes. Like it's hard to, for me personally, like it's, it's hard for me to, to keep that in mind when I'm sharing something vulnerable, because all I'm thinking about is the discomfort, the fear, you know, all I'm thinking about is, is what my mind has told me is going to happen from me sharing this, you know, and is this an environment where I'm okay to share that? That's the one thing that's great about, you know, recovery and in the space that we exist is that we have sort of grown accustomed to the idea or the fact that this is a safe space for us to share that, those feelings. And, and that I think is, is one of the first things that I had to realize in, in my recovery process is like, it's okay for me to talk about this stuff in all honesty. 
in this space because these are people that understand how it feels. These are people that have felt the same way. And these are people that have found solutions to that way of thinking. And so by me sharing, it's sure to only have a positive impact, but not always easy to do. Yeah. And it's not right. And you know, I, I, I love that I have the opportunity to like sit back and listen to like what other people have went through and how their lives have changed because of somebody else sharing something with them. Right. And, and how the chain effect of positivity happens in this arena, you know, because, you know, one of the big things that was hard for me to really dive into, I just, I didn't even know how to approach the situation with God in, in, even in sobriety, you know, um, I was kind of taught one way of thinking about God or one way of viewing God as a whole. And, and it's, it's well known on the show, you know, the people that listen, but, you know, ha- having the ability to navigate and like try different areas with a higher power um, so that I could grow spiritually was super important. And it was a huge game changer for me, you know, going to meetings and hearing other people talk about their personal God, their lack of a personal God mm-hmm. and their journey mm-hmm. towards a personal God was something that I absolutely needed. And, and it was something that put me in a place to where I was able to let go of God completely for a while and like take a different perspective on recovery and life in general. And so like one of the, one of the big things that I, I, I like to share as far as a game changer for me is my journey of spirituality and a higher power, you know, yeah, because that was, and it, and it still is, a huge part of the recovery movement. Like it's so big in recovery. You know, one of the things that we always suggest and you hear people talking about is you need this higher power thing. Right. Yeah. And so coming to an understanding of a power greater than myself, uh, in that struggle, um, is huge for me. And, and one of the game changers for me was I was at a meeting and, uh, I don't know, I was probably four or five years sober at the time. And this dude was in there, and he had, I think he has over, over 20 years of sobriety. And he was just chopping it up, and he was talking about his family. And um, he was sharing that his family was, like, giving him some grief about not going to church and not being a part of the family tradition and, like, not showing up and all that stuff. And so he, he was talking to him. And he was just kind of fed up with them grinding him about it, mm-hmm. you know, which fam, family cares, right? Yeah. When you have, when you have a strong belief that, that something bad might happen to your child because he's not acting appropriately in the eyes of God, like it's pretty scary, I'm sure, you know? And so his family's grinding on him and he's like, you know what, you guys, you know, f- you, you need to back the fuck off of me. Here's the thing. I am not a Christian. Hmm. I appreciate your concern, but if you don't leave me alone, then I'm going to have to do something else with my life. And it was the first time that I had ever heard anybody put it into context like that. You know, I'm not a Christian and I was raised in the Christian faith and a lot of people are, but I'm not a Christian, Mm -hmm. you know, and I didn't know that that was something that I could do. And because of him saying that out loud, it resonated with me in a way that opened me up to be able to explore higher power in a different perspective. Right. It was a game changer for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's something that that for you, like I, 
uh, you know, to, to go into it a little bit further, like for you, it has continued to evolve and shape and, and like your journey with it has been very interesting just to watch from, from my perspective over the last, you know, two or three years, what, what has continued to evolve and change as you remain open and willing and, 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 and everything like that. Like, I really appreciate, you know, being able to, to see that and to see your experience with it. Um, you know, one thing for me that I remember was super, like just very prominent in my early days of recovery was, um, was because, you know, like I'm, my thinking is a mess and that was very clear to me. Like, <laughs> you know, one thing that I was able to understand and identify pretty damn quickly in early recovery is that my thinking is the problem, Okay, you know, and that I, I have, you know, I, I think about things differently. Like yeah. I obsess, I, I assume what others are thinking. Like I'm always, you know, worried about tomorrow or feeling regret over yesterday. Like I'm never actually like experiencing the moment that I'm in. Right. Sure. And so it was difficult for me to, to really sort of wrap my mind around that. And one thing that I think really helped me, and again, this is something that, I remember being in a meeting and, and, uh, and having somebody after the meeting, um, share with me, uh, the book, the power of now oh, by, yeah. by Eckhart Tolle. Okay. And I had an opportunity to, uh, to sit down and listen to the audio book, um, for the entire duration of the book. Right. Like, so I listened to it all in one go. Like I was at work. It was a, chill day and I just listened to like I binged the whole thing mm. and my mind was blown you know <laughs> like if I highly recommend the power of now um, if you don't know anything about it it basically just teaches you how to stay in the present moment right like or it expresses to you the importance of how precious that is and the reality of that particular moment like um, and for me, it was just mind blowing. It really allowed me to sort of reel in some of that thinking that can get away from me, you mm. know, and, um, and, and I bring it up now and I think I'm thinking about it, um, because I recently had the opportunity to, to, to dive in again, you know, to, to uh, listen to it for a second time. And it, it has a way of sort of grounding me, um, and, and when I sort of fix uh, my thoughts into the concept of that book, I find that I'm more apt to communicate in a way that serves me um, and the people around me in a much more helpful manner, mm. you know. Um, and so for me, it, it, it completely blew my mind. Like it was one of those things that just absolutely changed the game for me. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I mean, and and the thing is, is that with any of these things, with with your concept there, and and my idea with uh, the power of now, like I had to be open to these new concepts and new ideas, mm -hmm. right? And, yeah. And 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 it took some time for me to get to that place where I was even willing to entertain. In fact, the only reason why I am even willing to to try these things, to listen to books that are suggestions from people or to, to flirt with the idea that I can think about God differently, 
um, is because of what I've been able to see in the rooms of recovery Mm -hmm. or what I've been able to learn in my sobriety. Like I've been able to, first of all, recognize that I don't know everything. No, I, I, you, you know, I, I got my ass kicked enough to be humble enough to be teachable. Right. Like I know nothing. Uh, please insert your ideas, suggestions here. And I will gladly take them as <laughs> the way I am currently living my life is completely wrong. Right. You know, so, um, so I had to be beaten into that, that desperation, um, enough for me to, to be open to these mm-hmm. things. And that's the thing is like, yes, that was important for me in early recovery, but it's still just as important for me today. Right. Like, and that's why we talk about humility quite a bit. And, and just the concept of, you know, like, Hey, like humility, isn't thinking of myself less or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Right. right? And so it's important that I remain, um, humble enough to accept and entertain new thoughts or new ideas that might serve me in a, in a, in a loving and helpful capacity. Yeah. And that's something that we, we totally hear and witness in uh, Melissa's war story. Mm-hmm. She's got a number of different things that, uh, that she found in her journey that continue to help her, um, as she moves through 23 years of, of sobriety. Yeah. And so it's pretty amazing. Like what, what, so you talked about that. Was there something else, any, any well, other like really big game changers for you? I mean, obviously the 12 steps all the way through was, a, was, a was a big game changer for me. Um, you know, that, that hearing another, another human being talking about the things that I kept secret was, mm. was huge for me. But what, what opening up, like you mentioned of being, you know, remaining, having your mind opened up to these new concepts, you know, when I was able to hear that that was something that I could do, you know, that I could, that I could question the faith that I grew up on mm-hmm. without, you know, without serious negative uh, consequences, um, it, it opened it up to kind of the same type of stuff. You know, one of the, the a book that really changed my perspective on everything was a book called Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. And the premise of that book was, you know, he's basically like his life is shit. He's suffering, you know, which mm-hmm. is what we're what we're here for is to alleviate suffering. That's kind of what um, what my whole M.O. is like. I don't like to suffer. So I try all this stuff to try to alleviate it. And right. then I end up suffering more because I'm focused on the suffering, not on the solution. But um, he was he was suffering and he decided to write a letter to God and as he wrote that letter out to God with all these questions about life and and in general his life and everybody else's life, he got done writing it. And uh, when he went to go throw his pen down, he couldn't move it. And the answers started flowing through him. And as he started this dialogue with inside of his head, which ended up being a conversation with God, you know, kind of in his own imagination or however it ended up happening for him, the book itself, as as he had this conversation with, with God, was I could recognize everything that he was talking about as a God that I already believed in but didn't know that I could. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it was everything that I imagined a God would be if there was a God. 
you know, I was like, that boy makes a lot of sense. And it was a lot different than the God that you had, that I grew up on yeah. or that, that I understood, you know, because some people read the Bible and they get a completely different. Yeah. Um, that's fair. You know, uh, understanding of it than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from the people that taught them how to read it, you know, the classes that they went to as children, um, you know, when, when it was introduced into their life. Yeah. You know, for me being a rambunctious kid uh, and having the imagination of a child, it was easier probably for the people that were in my life to, to threaten me with God mm. so that I would tr- as, as a way to try to calm me down because I was fucking hyper. Yeah, I was curious. I was into shit, mm-hmm. you know, and if you could if you could say, you know, hey, if you if you behave like that, God's going to punish you and get me convinced of that, then I might sit down and shut up for an hour. Or five minutes, <laughs> maybe, but it didn't work. I mean, I was going to say like the people around us are often just, just so desperate to do anything that. Yeah. I mean, being a parent now, uh, mm-hmm. which we were talking before, you know, becoming a parent was a game changer, but being a parent now, you know, I can see where, you know, people would want to relax a little. Yeah. 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 <laughs> kind of use anything at their disposal. <laughs> the kids is. Having kids all the time, they're always around. <laughs> they're always yeah, into making, making messes and shit, you know. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things that you said, I don't want to get too far off, but one of, I just want to share this really quick because one of my favorite things you said about being a parent, because, you know, I'm having a kid and so we, <laughs> we talk a lot about it now and you're just like, everything's wet. <laughs> just all of, like, why is this wet? Why, why is this wet? Yeah. I'm just like, okay, man. Like, I guess I just freaking better just have a towel around all the time. All the time. And, and if you can, if you can convince your child that, you know, you like, it's inconvenient for it to be wet and you can convince your kid that, uh, you're going to be punished in hell if it's not dry all the time and it worked. Like I could, I could totally see (laughs) that. Let's roll with it. Yeah. Because you know, the people that raised me were alcoholics and drug addicts too. Right. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. everybody was going through their own shit, but, um, so, so all that stuff is forgiven. It's just part of my story, part Mm -hmm. of my journey that led up to, uh, you know, it was a lifetime of, of experiences and beliefs and, you know, disappointments and thought structures and, and, you know, experimenting with my life and trying different things that got me to where I was at when I was able to finally start questioning these things. And so, um, again, it goes back to, you know, when, when all that happened for me, I was suffering. Mm. Right. And so if I'm not suffering, there's no need to change. Right. As far as I can tell, like if I'm good, then the fact that I'm an alcoholic means like everything is good. So I'm going to manufacture something, you know, and we've, t- we talked about that yeah. not too long ago on the show. Like I'm going to manufacture an issue. Yeah. I'm going to turn one of my blessings into a problem so that I can fucking burn my house to the ground. Justify. You know? Yeah. Justify. It, that's the insanity of the disease. That's the insanity of the disease that I have. And so like having, having enough behind me, enough experience behind me from the, the teachers that I've had is such a huge deal for me to be able to go, okay, I'm in this space right now and I'm in a space of growth. I don't need to fucking destroy everything in my life because I've had enough game changing experiences to show me that this is going to pass. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of it, it's going to be an experience that I'm able to grow from, teach from, and, and my life will be the more fulfilled for it. 
all, yeah. all those things, you know, and it's huge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate, you know, the lessons that we, that we learn in recovery and, and, and the things that we are taught by, by those around us. One of the biggest things that I learned, um, early on in recovery was that I was wrong <laughs> about what just life in All general, it, right? you know, like so just, much. just my, my whole conception of how the world worked <laughs> yeah. was wrong. Like, yeah. and I, I don't, I, I think I've been doing some reflecting on this recently. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, remembering just how, how misguided my thinking was. And it's hard to say where it came from. I mean, we talked a lot about, you know, our parents and, and our upbringing, um, and just sort of the, the our parents did the best they could. Right. And for and sure. It, and it's nobody's fault that certain ideas or concepts that they conveyed to us may have had the impact that they did. One of the things that I think my mother told me all the time growing up was that I was special and, I honestly think, and, and how how could that be wrong? Like, how could there be anything wrong with that? Right? Like my mother is telling me that I'm special and, and, and you wouldn't think that there's anything wrong with that. But I honestly think that what that did is that it, it made me feel as though I was special enough that things would happen for me through no fault of my own. Right? Like I, I, I need not take action because I am special enough that me simply existing in this speciality will thus bring those things that I am deserved. <laughs> I could see that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and so yeah, like, I, see that. I totally had this notion that things were going to happen for me and I, I need only wait and be patient. Yeah. And, uh, and when I got into, well, when I got addicted to drugs and alcohol <laughs> and I could see that that was clearly not the case, right? Like, obviously these things are not going to happen for me, Yeah, you know, and, 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 uh, and then in recovery, I learned that I am not special. Yeah. I am not special. I'm not unique. Yes. And what I mean when I, when I say I'm not special is that I, I, will earn only what it is I go after mm -hmm. just as anybody else will. Right. Right. Like no, I am entitled to nothing. Mm -hmm. There is no reason for me to think that things will happen for me without any action on my end. Yeah. And so once I was able to realize that and, and sort of put that preconceived notion behind me and say, you know what? Like I've been sort of looking at everything wrong. And, and I was wrong about how the world works. And if I participate with life on life's terms, I'm more apt to get the things that I might want. Yeah. And, and so that for me was just, again, sort of another mind blowing moment, like a game changing moment for me. And I was able to take that newly found bit of empowerment that I got after putting some decent clean time behind me. Because again, one of the things that I was wrong about is that I can get sober. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. It turns out that, you know, like if I surrender enough and I do what other people tell me to and I accept life on life's terms 
and I live according to those terms that I, I can get sober. Mm -hmm. So once I, I knew that I had that in me, uh, if I, if I follow those directions, then I said, what else have I been wrong about? You know, like I, I've been wrong about a lot of things. Like let, let's, let me take a look at some of these other things. And so another area that I was wrong was like my career. I sort of felt stuck where I was at, you yeah. know, like this is it for me. And it turns out like, because I'd sort of given up on the idea of like going to school and, you know, and, um, having a job or a career that I was passionate about or that I loved, I'd sort of given up on all that, you yeah. know? And again, I was wrong. Yep. It's like, it turns out like there's no reason why I can't do any of that stuff, you know? And, uh, and so that's, that's what I did. You know, I was able to go back to school. I was able to change my career. I was able to embark into this path that has led me to a life that I never would have dreamed of, but I'm so grateful that I have, mm -hmm. you know, like I, this is, let me be clear. I want to be clear on something. This is what Charlie always says. I, and I want to be clear on something. I, I want, I just want to hear, I just want to hear this, right? This is not the life that I would have chosen. Okay. <laughs> it, it's not right. This is not the life I would have chosen for myself. No, but it's so much better than I would have done for me. Mm -hmm. I would be miserable with the life I would have chosen for me. Yeah. You know, and I, and I know that because every choice that I made for myself led me to misery. Yeah. Self, they're all selfish, right? Exactly. Like it was all based in self. Exactly. Yeah. And so like, I can look at my situation now and say, this is, this is the, a part of, of something and it was brought into my life for a reason. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's bigger than me. And I accept that today as, as where I'm supposed to be. Mm. And I really, really appreciate that I, I've gained that perspective through a program of recovery, through books that I've been able to, to read, um, you know, on the way through people that I get to interact with and have these conversations with and, and different things. Like I've been able to gain that new perspective and, and, uh, and, and live a life that, that is so, so much better than I could guess, you know, like if, if the only problem I have today, and we've said this before, Willie, if the only problem I have today is food, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, lo I love, I love that you just said it's bigger than me, you know, and as you were sharing, I can't help but recognize like, you know, if you wouldn't have changed careers, um, to do what you do now, like I dare say this podcast would not be here. Yeah. I you don't know. I, there's because I mean, you went from from being in an office for the IRS working for the government uh, into, you know, film, film school, like to become what you are now, to be able to edit the podcast the way that it is, direct it, produce it, all the things that you do for the show. And, you know, so you going to school is a huge game changer for all of us, including mm -hmm. the people that are listening. And, you know, the fact that we can sit here and be transparent um, through all this stuff and say, you know, uh, the disease of alcoholism affects us to this day. Yeah. And, and we continue yeah. to do work on it because we saw the change that can happen in people 
and in ourselves. But we saw that we saw the change that can happen in the people that continue to do, do the work and the people that don't continue to do the work. And we watched people come in that were just on fire. And we watched people that were here before us go back out, you know, and, and the disease of, of alcoholism, the way that it manifests itself in our mind is it tries to separate us from each other. And knowing that, knowing that anything that I'm doing that tries to keep me from talking to you is probably a space of dis-ease. Mm. And just the whole process, right? The entire process of leading up to where I'm at today has been such a blessing. And I, I don't want to ever get into a space where I completely forget that because, you know, as I said at the beginning of this, I'm a mess right now. And the reason that I feel like I'm a mess is because I feel like inside of myself, there is this desire to let it all go mm. and do something easy. You know, like I just yeah. want to, I just want to do something easy and, and the easy path got me here. <laughs> and oh it, man. It was fucking destructive, you know? So understanding and learning the illness that I have is, is huge, you know, and I love being able to share this stuff on this platform because of the things that have changed in my life, mm. you know, dude, what you just said is so fucking powerful. And, and I, I guarantee, and I, I say this because I identified with it, but I guarantee that there's a lot of people out there that will identify with what you just said. Like, we, you, there's this deep thing within you that just wants to let it all go. And we, we know what that is, right? Like mm -hmm. it's the disease and, and <clears throat> wants to let it go for something that's easy. <laughs> and how many times have I told you like everything that I have to do during the day is fucking something that interferes with me taking a nap. Yeah. It's in the way of me taking a nap. Exactly. Because that's the easy thing, right? Yeah. Like that's what I want to do. I want to fucking take a nap because it's easy. Yeah. And all this other stuff I have to do is hard. Mm -hmm. But what value do I gain from doing the easy thing? Right? Like mm -hmm. what, what is doing the easy thing ever done for me except for be self-destructive? Right. And that's exactly what we, what we get to learn and what we get to identify with in, in, in our recovery in sobriety. And so it, uh, thank you for saying that, because I think that there's going to be a lot of people that will identify with that. And, and the fact that you're on here and you're sharing it, I think is again, and another, another reason why we, we do this, right? Yeah. Like this, this podcast is a huge game changer for me. As far as transparency, responsibility, growth, all, all the things, you know, consistency. Um, we've been consistent with the show for a long time, um, showing up here regardless of how we feel or what we have going on in our lives. We've been able to, to sit down with one another and, and over a cup of coffee, mm. put on the headphones and, and talk about shit in transparency, you know. And, you know, I think it would be a disservice if, if we didn't... Um, talk a little bit about how, um, you know, finding, finding growth through nutrition and health, um, has been a huge game changer too. And it's been a huge struggle. Like, yeah, you know, one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, you know, I got sober and then I got fat. And when I got fat, I got mentally unstable. And when I get mentally unstable, taking a drink sounds pretty good. And so, um, I had to embark on another journey within sobriety, which was 
uh, physical sobriety, you know, through, through nutrition and, and exercise, which is, has, has forever been, uh, yep. uh, a roller coaster ride of physical and mental, emotional and spiritual, uh, a roller coaster ride of funness, I guess. <laughs> like, that, I'm like, glad you have that perspective. Like, it has been interesting to get to know myself in that arena, you know, um, but there's, there's no way that I can't not do this part of the journey because, um, I can see so clearly through the experiences of myself and through other people that, uh, I have no choice, but to continue on the path of wellness, complete wellness in all areas of my life. And so that means not taking a drink no matter what, and not getting off the spiritual path, no matter what, you know, one of the promises at the very end of it says, uh, you know, if you go through and you read the ninth step promises on page 83, page 83 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The last thing it says, it says, uh, uh, we find this to be true as long as we stay in fit spiritual condition or, or something. I don't know. I can't say it verbatim, but what does it say? You'd think I'd be able to, but. Oh, I think, yeah, uh, that's the ballpark. Yeah, that's the ballpark. As long as we stay in fit, spiritual condition, and whether you have a higher power, don't have a higher power, you're in in line with God or you're seeking God out, whether you're in between gods or borrowing a God, whether you're solid with your God, or there is no God involved in your spirituality, like wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, um, if you're moving towards an understanding of something that's going to work for you and you're not moving backwards towards that drink, you are staying in fit spiritual condition because you're exercising that spiritual part of your life. And the only way to stay in fit, fit mm-hmm. spiritual condition is to exercise some type of spirituality, which, you know, I think is exactly what Melissa does. Yeah, very, very well said. Uh, she, she does a, a, a lot of things. <laughs> so that's, many. That's, that's one of them, you know, and she's done it consistently for a, yeah. a, a long period of time. And she's continued to investigate to determine what it is she needs to do next in order to better understand herself and, mm-hmm. and the reason why she does the things that she does. Yeah. And it's led her to, uh, to so much self-discovery that... She's able to share her stories on platforms like this, and and she does quite a bit of writing and yep. and, uh, and and numerous other ways for her to share that information in order to to help others. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and you know, let us not forget that that's a, a huge part of uh, of our recovery. My recovery is is a service, and uh, and. Yeah. And so we're honored that she was able to, to come on and share her story for sure. with us. For sure. Uh, we got this topic from her story and you'll, you'll see why, because she's been through a lot of things that, a lot of things that have been game changers for her. So, yeah. 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 And, and I like that you mentioned she's a writer because that's how I connected with her. I read one of her articles and was like, I, I need to talk to this lady. And she was uh, gracious enough to share her story with us. So what do you say we let her tell it? Let's hear it. Man. Yeah. So without further ado, here is Melissa's war story. My name is Melissa and I'm an alcoholic and drug addict in recovery. Uh, my sobriety date is 2-23-1998. Uh, I got sober when I was 21. 
and I'm almost 45. So I've lived more of my life sober than I had drinking. Um, so I'm just going to share a little bit about my experience, uh, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So I was born to an alcoholic. Uh, my mom uh, met my dad in a bar, and she needed a ride home, and he gave her one. She was uh, 22, and he was 19, and she liked him, but uh, he didn't like her. So they slept together uh, for a while, and when she found out she was pregnant, he gave her money for an abortion and left. And I think that dug a hole in her and she just continued to drink and use drugs and find men that weren't kind to her and abusive to her. And through that, she had me. Um, I was a young girl, lots of different boyfriends in and out. Um, I had a strong foundation with my grandparents. They took me and I had a couple aunts that were really helpful to me, my family. So I think they saved me. Um, my life at home was tumultuous. Um, I'd wake up in the night with my mom gone um, in the backseat of the car while she was at the bar. Um, lots of abusive boyfriends. Um, I am actually writing a book about my story, so I don't want to give away too much, but a real tumultuous um, upbringing. And at six years old, we escaped from one of her violent boyfriends. I went to my, started my third, first grade uh, school. We'd moved three times that year. And she met another boyfriend and we moved in with him and they'd met at a bar. So that was from when I was six years old until 25 years after they stayed together that whole time. My mom was never married and he turned out to be a drug dealer. So we had people in and out of our home um, selling drugs. And I grew up rolling joints and knew that there were pot plants in the closet and selling weed and uh, I'd still never met my biological father. I knew that he would been incarcerated for drugs. Someone had narked him out and he had a, uh, a coke, he was a coke dealer. So he was in prison and I wanted to meet him. So as a young girl, on um, seven, eight, nine, ten, I would look for him in the phone book. I would, I knew his name. I would look for anyone that had that last name. I would, I found out um, when he got out of prison, the place that he worked, I would call and ask if he was there. And when they went to get him, I would hang up. And so when I was 15, I met him and he had a wife and a Harley business and he was sober and he looked like me. And I was so happy to have met my real dad. And we had, um, I met new grandparents, new cousins, new family I got out of my mom and her boyfriend's abusive home life. And um, I was, so I was in 10th grade at the time. And I started just hanging out with my dad, riding on the back of his Harley. And um, they bought me things and I felt seen and heard for the first time. And they helped me um, like through high school, they helped me get braces. My teeth were really crooked. Just all the things that I, I needed. I needed to be seen and heard. I'd been abused most of my life. so. Him and I were, became friends is the best way I can say it. And my senior year of high school, a girlfriend and I went to California for our senior trip. And I was 17 and she was 18. And by then I'd been drinking and using drugs, mostly mushrooms, acid, weed, drinking a lot. Um, but I hadn't yet tried cocaine or meth. So we went on this trip and we met the guys in the hotel, Motel 6 in Anaheim. 
and they pull out a shoebox and it's full of Coke. And for my whole life, I'd said, I'll never do drugs. I'll never drink. I don't want to be like my mom. I don't want to be like her boyfriend. They're losers. I hate them. Why are they so stupid? They fight all the time. I'm constantly calling the police. I'm scared out of my mind, you know, watching them fight. I think he's going to kill us. All of the, the terror that goes with seeing, uh, witnessing domestic abuse. And that, that shoebox of Coke came out and I had no reservations. I snorted as much as I could. We went out to the pool. I felt like I owned the place. I walked into a bar at 17. Nobody carded me. I just felt better than I'd ever felt in my life. Um, so fast forward the next day, we meet our neighbors in the Motel 6 upstairs, and they introduce us to meth. So we're using Coke and meth and um, having all kinds of experiences with these guys in the hotel. And we make our way home. And before we even get our swimsuits off and get into the house, we jump in her car and go look for the Coke dealer in our, in our town. And I should say, I grew up in um, about a half an hour south of Seattle and not the best area. So we had a lot of friends that drank and used and we knew where to access drugs. Um, so we got, we get to the guy's house and he says, Nope, I'm not going to sell it to you guys. I'm not going to sell you Coke. So we're defeated. We go back. My dad, my battery's dead in my car. I call my dad. He comes to pick me up and I say, Dad, I used Coke for the first time. And he's like, next time you need to tell me so I can get you the good stuff. And so his addiction, he'd been a Coke addict. He'd been sober. He'd been out in prison. He, he was out now. His life was turned around. But me saying that ignited his addiction again. And from then on, he's bringing me Coke and meth and we're using together and we're buddies and we're smoking it. And we end up in crack houses smoking crack and he's, he's my drug, my, my, my drug partner. And I come home from being out and he's, you know, giving me lines and I'm, I'm selling for him. So he hands me packages and we're out at Harley parties or bars and I meet women in the bathroom and hand them the package. And he gives me some as the reward. And, um, I was pretty depressed and suicidal through that. And so I quit my job and went to work for him and we had a falling out. And a few years later, his house got condemned and he had a meth lab and went back to prison. So he went back for six years. I got sober and our lives went separate ways. But um, after that time he got out of prison, after those six years, he ended up getting sober and he died with 10 years sober. So he did, he did it was too late, but he did end up clearing up his life. Um, and then just real quick, I'll tell my, um, my alcoholic mom about 12 years ago, um, moved to California. She'd been sober. She actually got, um, pancreatitis. I had taken her to treatment. She tried so many times to stay sober, but it just didn't happen for her. And, um, she was in a recovery house and met this guy and moved to California. And then a year later, I got a call that she'd been found in a hotel room dead from alcoholism. So that was when she was 55. So both my parents, you know, mostly died from drug and alcohol induced reasons. Um, even though my dad was sober at the time, they just abused their bodies so much. Um, same with my grandparents. And so I come from a long line of suicide and mental illness, alcoholism, drug addiction, abuse, domestic abuse. And for me at 21, I got a DUI. I, I knew I didn't want to live this way. I couldn't see what was different about my life and my mom's. I, 
had had an abortion in high school with my meth addicted boyfriend. Um, I was in my own abusive relationships and I just, I hardly graduated high school. I just, I didn't know what I, what to do with my life. I didn't see how I could break this cycle. So the DUI ended up being a blessing. I had to go to two years of outpatient treatment in Washington. They have a law um, that if you do a deferred prosecution, you don't get in any more trouble. They'll let it go off your record, but um, you have to do some kind of treatment and you have to admit you're an alcoholic. And so I did that. I said, what the worst, what's the worst thing that can happen if I have to stay sober two years? And so I stayed sober about three weeks and I drank again. And that was my last drink. It was not a good night for me at all. And um, it's just like the same thing always happened to me when I drank. I just couldn't stop and put myself in a lot of precarious situations like, like we do. But um, I went to, I had to go to AA two times a week. And so I'd already been in AA for a little bit. And I went to them and I said, you know, I went out for a work function and I wasn't going to drink. And I promised and I had a friend with me and she said she won't let me drink. But everyone was dancing and having fun and I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to just like be. And so I had just one and one led to me being in a van in the middle of the night, not knowing where I was, my nylons ripped and everything just like off my body. And that's what always happened. And um, I showed up at that meeting. I shared about it. They said, come back next Sunday. We need you to help us chair the meeting. And they gave me a, a job to do. And they said, just don't drink in between this Sunday and next Sunday. Can you do that? And I said, I would try. So I did. And that was seven days. And I made it to that Sunday. And I just kept doing that every week. I would just show up back to that meeting. And I had, I had to go to other meetings too. But it's true what they say about meetings. Like the little things that you hear in the meetings, you relate and you resonate. And then you drink again. And it just, something clicks. Some, something clicked for me, luckily. Um, so I met uh, a guy in AA. And I had met him previously out partying, but I met him again in AA. I said, hey, do you remember me? And he didn't want anything to do with me. But we started hanging out, and with eight months of sobriety, I got pregnant. And we quickly got married. And I was three weeks before my due date when we had our first son, and he's 21. And so me and his dad are both sober, 23 years, and our 21-year-old has never seen a streak. So it's pretty incredible. And um, this kid's had a completely different life, you know, than we had. Both of us, he was a heroin addict, and we both had our own, um, you know, trials in our childhood uh, that we'd run from. So that's the pride of, of my story, just my parenting and my, uh, my journey to that. Um, throughout my recovery, uh, I'm now remarried, and my, my ex-husband's remarried, and um, Neither of our partners, you know, have seen that part of us. Um, the best part about my sobriety has been learning that, like, I never thought I'd be a mother. I never thought I'd have the ability to nurture another person. And through my recovery and the people that I've met and, like, the role models that I've found, I've been able to naturally have that instinct. I just had it. And so through parenting... I found love that I needed when I was a kid. I didn't have that, but through my own children, I've been able to just like find that love for my inner child. And so most of my recovery um, was pretty good. I'd gotten divorced, remarried, had another child, 
And then in 2017, my husband and I decided to move from Seattle to Minnesota uh, to be closer to his family. And so I had almost 20 years of recovery. I thought I should be doing well. I drove a BMW. I like it was a teacher. I looked the part. I'd gone to college and got a four-year degree. Why, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I not okay? I have these emotional outbursts, reactions. I, um, I yell. I punch things. I, I peel out of the driveway angry. Like, what is wrong with me? And um, we moved all the way across the country to be close to my in-laws because I didn't have family. And I felt like I'm the only child. My parents had passed. I felt like my son needed more. And we get there and these people are so nice and gracious and religious and they've been married 50 years and they grew up in church in this small town in Minnesota from Seattle and I, I'm like a liberal vegan like I just did not know how to be in a family. And so I'd show up at Thanksgiving and I'd show up at Christmas and I'd have to leave early I'd have anxiety. And I didn't feel like I fit I felt like an alien and I ended up just crying all the time and I'd wake up in the night journaling and writing and praying and, and just feeling so out of place. And, um, I ended up finding a book called adult children of alcoholics. And I read that book and I cried and I cried and I cried. I read it in one day and I realized that I had emotional trauma and I think trauma was a word that I hadn't heard. Um, and I'd been in a lot of therapy, a lot of therapy, And every time I went to therapy, they gave me medication for anxiety and depression. And I took it. But a lot of my life, those sobriety years, I was kind of a zombie because I was drugged. And um, I'd look at my diet. I would try to exercise more. You know, it was just like I never got to the root of that childhood trauma. And so in that book, it talks about, you know, the laundry list traits of a child who grew up in an alcoholic or dysfunctional home. And I had them all. And that, and I felt seen and I felt heard. And I'm like, this is my problem. This is, you know, this is the root of my problem. And so I cried and I read that book and I thought there's no way there's a meeting here in this small town. And there was, and I showed up and I heard other people talking about the abuse of their childhood and how that affected them. And I finally was able to share some of that shame and those stories and how I, God, I just try to protect myself and ha- and show a different persona to the world than what I, how I felt inside. I thought they knew how poor I was. They knew how abused I was. They knew the names I'd been called and the shame, you know, the shameful things I had done. And so I was trying to cover it up, but I still felt it. I still still heard their voices in my head and the lies they told. And so I got went to those meetings. So it's only been about four years that I started working a program in adult children of alcoholics, and it saved my life. Um, I'm off meds. I'm able to like have tools to breathe when I start feeling that anxiety come. I'm a big, big proponent of just like meditation and yoga and stretching and breathing and mindfulness and getting to the root, which for me is journaling and prayer. And I'll just talk a little bit about um, when I went to college, I took a class called food and mental health. And I stepped into that class and it was taught by a naturopath and she showed us all these videos about what food and uh, ingredients do to our minds and our bodies. And we watched like forks over knives, food matters. We watched about the animal agriculture industry and I had no idea. So um, I knew that dairy wasn't great for you. 
And, you know, 20 years prior, I'd done some research and had stopped drinking milk for a time, you know, just little things. But um, this lady educated me and I started juicing and I started looking at my diet and nutrition and um, I had, I had good habits, but they weren't the best. And ever since watching those videos, so that was in about 2011, I stopped eating meat. And then when I moved to Minnesota, I watched a documentary called What the Health? And I went vegan that day. And it's, it'll be four years in August, but taking dairy and meat out of my diet um, has been super instrumental for just like overall health, digestion, elimination, all of that, um, energy, skin, everything, everything. Um, so now um, it's important to me and it always has been, but I just take a look at every day, like what I'm eating, what I'm putting in my body. We don't eat sugar. I don't do caffeine, obviously don't do alcohol, um, but it's been baby steps. Like I don't want anyone newly sober to think that um, this is what they need to do either. Like I smoked, I ate fast food. I, I did all of that and I just didn't drink. And that's really the important message is just don't drink and all the rest of this will come. But now I can say like with 23 years sober, I've been able every year probably to give something up that um, was a crutch for me. I don't like waking up groggy and needing something for fuel. I like to just wake up and, and exercise or work out or get my energy in a natural way. So it's been vice after vice after vice. And I, I definitely spent my time in Debtors Anonymous. I'm an impulsive shopper. I spend money to feel good and buy things to feel good. And I have to be accountable with my finances. I have to be super careful about what I spend money on because the more I get, the more I want. And it's and just with anything, I've done the 12 steps, you know, in AA, done the 12 step, doing the 12 steps currently in ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics. And then the 12 steps apply also to Debtors Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous. There's so many things that they can benefit, we can learn from. And most importantly, like working with another person and telling that person your ugly truth, because the best thing anyone ever said to me was, I'm sorry that happened to you, or I understand. And it, just for alcoholics and for addicts to feel heard and validated is, is huge. So basically that's most of my story. I will, I will end there. My life today is nothing like it was before I got sober. Um, I, I, like I mentioned in the beginning, I am writing a book. It's called Let Your Privates Breathe. And it's a memoir and it tells my life story. And I have a writing page on Facebook called Let Your Privates Breathe, Melissa Stussy. And let's see, my Insta is at Mel Stussy. And I have a website, melissastussy.com. So yeah, hopefully my book will be out the end of this summer and I'll have pre-sale and I'm looking forward to that. That's been huge for me. I also write articles on Elephant Journal and it's easy to find me and um, Melissa Stussy on Elephant Journal. So I started writing articles um, just since July. I've written about 90 and they're all about alcoholism, sobriety, veganism, emotional reactions, adult children of alcoholics, emotional wounds. All, all kinds of things. So I hope you find me there. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah. I can't, yeah. Can't wait to read your book. There's just, there's so much in your story. 
That There's going to be even more in your book. So, yeah, I feel like it's kind of clear, like why we chose the game changer topic. Like, yeah, she had so many moments, um, you know, after sobriety where she got into the adults, children. Yeah, that was alcoholics. huge. And that for her, yeah, it was sort of a game changer, mm-hmm. right? Big time. And then she's it changed into her diet, nutrition. Like, yeah, all that stuff is just and and that's again, like like I said, like we've been talking about, is we we get to have these moments in our recovery where we where we learn more as we go down the road, and and uh, and each one is just like boom, boom, boom. Yeah. You know? And and it, it's a great demonstration, you know. And I thank you, Melissa, for this. Um, and. Uh, you know, we can, we can re- try to recover so hard in one area that, you know, cause she started talking about, you know, where, where she became re- really short fused and, mm-hmm. and was really confused about her own behavior. And, you know, I, there's times where I feel that same way where I'm like, what the fuck is going on with me? Like I have all the boxes checked, like I'm doing all the things, you know, and it's usually just a sign that, um, that there's more work to be done. And a lot of times, like, we don't know what that is, but if we remain open, the answer will come to us. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's obvious. And for her, it was, it was that, you know, she needed to do the work in adult children of alcoholics um, because of all the amount of shit she went through as a kid, you yeah. know, like, like all the trauma that she, she had been exposed to and, and not even knowing what the word was. Yeah. You know? She'd never been told that. And so, but I could see where like Jesus, you know, coming up the way that she did, uh, you know, with the amount of drugs and, and having it validated through her parents, Yeah, you know, her dad, especially like, like it's okay. And then her mom dying of alcoholism, like her life was saturated. And, And here's another perfect example of like, you cannot judge us by the way that we look, Absolutely. sound, or what careers we have, or any of that stuff, you know, because inside each one of us, there is this internal struggle that is uh, trying to destroy us. Like, it's so, it's so relevant for those of us in the alcoholic community. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. And one thing that I really identified with in her story is that moment that she talked about how she swore she would never do these things because yeah. because of the things that she had witnessed growing up she'd seen what alcohol did to her parents and and what the drugs did to 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 her mother and the men that she would bring around and and then you know somebody has cocaine at a party and it's just there's no hesitation it's my story right there that's a, a, mine as well you know like i i've shared on this t- podcast before that that was my experience with ecstasy mm-hmm. never was going to do it. And then all of a sudden I'm at a party, it's there and it's like, boom, yep. here I go. Yeah. That was my same experience with, with uh, meth, you know, like we're not, we're never new powders. And then here it is in front of me and did it. Yep. You know, there's some internal, like for me, there was some internal con- conflict at that moment, but it I, I wanted acceptance more than I wanted, like to hold to my values. Yeah, yeah, for me. I dare say that's that's what you know she was thinking as well. Is is, is especially where she lived this life where that's she didn't really ever get any. You know. Yeah. She finally saw a little bit of that when she was able to reconnect with her father down the road. You know, like he was able to to give her some of the stuff that she had been missing with that relationship with her mom. But then you know that relationship became. 
you know, a very alcoholic dependent yeah. relationship and based on drugs, uh, yeah. which is a crazy twist in her story. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it, I, I definitely did not see that coming. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that dad died with 10 years. That's what I know. mean. Yeah. That's what's up. Yeah, for sure. It's so, it's so great. And, and again, the, there's the contrast for you, right? His dad died with 10 years sober and mom died an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it sounds like, you know, both were fairly young. Yeah. Yeah. Probably before their time. You know, mm-hmm. that's what, that's what this disease does. It takes us, it takes us before our time, you know, it takes us before our time of living. It takes us before our time of opportunity and it leaves behind a lot of questions and just a, a, a wake of destruction, unfortunately. And so, you know, I'm grateful for, for this movement that I get to be on this side of the table with Melissa and yourself and, you know, the, the many, the many people that have shared their stories with us that I've been able to resonate and connect with every single one of them Mm -hmm. on some level. Yeah. I am not alone. Yeah. You know, and she, she talks about, you know, having this stuff well received by other people, you know, so that we can, we can talk about it and, and be accepted despite you know, this is the only place that we can do that, you know, that I know of, you know, I can't exactly, I don't know, like I'm, I'm pretty saturated in recovery now, but there was, there was a time that, you know, I probably couldn't talk about this stuff at church. <laughs> it wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have went over well, you know, just the, the lack of trust in God and well, and why is that? Because we fear we're going to get judged. We fear, you know, that, that, that we're going to, be shamed or we're going to have that guilt. And that's one thing that we don't find in, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous or or a 12 step meeting is that we, we go in there and we, we're not judged. We're not shamed. And, and, uh, you know, we're made to feel like our behavior is, is, uh, exactly what people like us do. Yeah. And, and that's what she was able to find when she was forced to go into, you know, a, a meeting and, uh, and that for her began this incredible journey that mm-hmm. she's been on for, for 23 years. And, and that's just so inspiring and amazing that, um, that man, when I showed up, people would say 23 years and I would call bullshit, <laughs> you know, there was just no way yeah. I, I just, I couldn't believe it. Like I, and, and, and the other part of that is, you know, like not only could I not believe that that somebody could go 23 years without drinking or taking a drug but i i had no no problems thinking that somebody would lie about that for 23 yeah. years yeah you know probably lying <laughs> probably of course they've had a drink you know like that person is sitting here lying yeah they've been lying for 23 years we know years. different now you know we, we know the fact that you have the time you have the time i have in fact, in the time that she has, in fact, mm-hmm. can happen. Absolutely. You can get sober, lose the desire, and find a new way to live. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was incredible. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's get out of here. Yeah. This podcast is getting in the way of me and how, a nap. How you, <laughs> <laughs> how you feeling now? I feel okay. I'm I'm proud of myself for getting through 
and doing another wonderful episode of this and getting probably more out of it than what I'm putting into it. So well, well said. Yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate I'll you taking here. Yeah, and I appreciate Jordan being here. Thanks, Jordan. Love you, Jordan. Thanks, Ryland. Ryland, you're amazing. Nice shirt. I like yeah. your shirt. And with that, we will see you on the other side. Remember, you are worth the work. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.